This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. We focus on a full-length exploration of a novel new theory on what's behind the North American obesity epidemic. Author Mark Schatzker believes the added vitamins in fortified food may be to blame. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Social media is now linked to depression in middle age, too. A Harvard study finds people in their 50s and 60s who use platforms like TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram are substantially more likely to feel down than their peers. Researchers found adults feel even sadder if they use platforms favored by younger people possibly because it makes them feel old. But the researchers could not rule out that depressed people may be more likely to log on to social media, perhaps as an escape. The findings are published in the medical journal JAMA Network Open. A new American study suggests cigarette smokers are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease than they are for lung cancer. Northwestern University researchers reviewed data of more than 106,000 people and looked at their age and the onset of their first heart attack, stroke, or case of heart failure. When they compared smokers and non-smokers, they found non-smokers on average had an onset of the events five years later than the smokers. Her photograph became world famous. Now she's a refugee in Italy after being evacuated following the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. You probably don't know Sharbat Gullah's name, but chances are you've seen the iconic 1984 picture of her on the cover of National Geographic magazine. Gala gained international fame as an Afghan refugee girl after war photographer Steve McCurry's photograph of her with piercing green eyes was published. McCurry found her again in 2002. She surfaced in Pakistan in 2014, and now the 49-year-old Gala is hoping to start a new life in Europe. Did you read Vanity of the Bonfires? I did not. I really can't hear with his earphone, by the way. That's Donald Trump seemingly avoiding a question about the latest books he read during a 1987 interview. Now the 75-year-old former president is writing his first post-White House book that will require very little reading. Trump is publishing a hardcover collection of hundreds of photographs from his administration, featuring his own captions, some handwritten. Our journey together will be out December 7th, but not through a traditional New York publisher. It will instead be released through a new company, co-founded by son Donald Trump Jr., called Winning Team Publishing. New York publishers have resisted working with Trump, especially after the January siege of the U.S. Capitol, 
by some of his supporters. Shouldn't your baby be a Gerber baby? The original Gerber baby just celebrated her 95th birthday. Anna Turner Cook has been the face of the company since 1928 when her neighbor entered a charcoal sketch of the baby into a contest for an advertising campaign. Anne's famous face has been printed on countless products over the generations. The company posted a very happy birthday to the original Gerber baby on its social media pages. Her identity was kept secret until 1978, and the company said that over the years, people speculated that it might have been a sketch of Humphrey Bogart, Elizabeth Taylor, Senator Bob Dole, or Jane Seymour. Cook became an English teacher when she grew up and wrote a series of mystery novels after she retired. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a fascinating new theory on what's behind the huge increase in obesity in North America. It turns on the idea that the solution to a different epidemic, a hundred years ago, became one of the causes of the obesity epidemic. And it also explains why many Europeans who eat calorie-rich diets manage to stay thin. I talked with author Mark Schatzker about the end of craving, recovering the lost wisdom of eating well. Mark Schatzker, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. You begin the book talking about something many of us have never heard of, and that is a disease called pellagra. Yes, pellagra. It means rough skin in a dialect of Italian, and that's because that's the way the disease starts. Uh, it started in, in Italy many hundreds of years ago, and a farmer would kind of get these skin scales, and it would progress to uh, diarrhea, dementia, eventually death. And it, it wound up a little over a century ago appearing in the American South. Um, some people say this is where we get the term redneck from because the effect it has on people's skin. And it was just like um, our epidemic of obesity. Nobody knew what was causing it, and everybody had the answer, uh, but all the scientists were wrong. What was it, and how did we solve it? So what it turned out to be um, was a vitamin deficiency. And it, the vitamins were not understood at the time. It slowly became understood that there was some element missing in the diet of the people that suffered from pellagra. And they knew that if they fed them things like beans or milk or cheese or meat, it, it would cure them. This helped us develop the idea of micronutrients. Eventually, we came to understand it's a deficiency of niacin, also called vitamin B3. And the way we solved it is we started literally just adding niacin to flour. Uh, first, just you know, regular flour and bread, but now it's in most of the car- processed carbs we eat, including rice and corn. And we used j- just literally funneling vitamins into the food supply, got rid of pellagra. It, um, it worked beautifully almost overnight. Um, although they took a very different approach in Italy. Okay, well, still back to the pellagra. So the people who had it were mostly poor, right? What kind of a diet did they eat? Well, they were eating what we would think of as an incredibly high-calorie diet. Um, it was pork fat, grits, which is to say corn flour, and molasses, so carbs, fat, and sugar. And yet they couldn't process any of those calories because they didn't have the necessary vitamins. So they literally starved on an incredibly high calorie diet. Would you have called it an epidemic of pellagra? It was absolutely an epidemic. It, it killed tens of thousands of people and, and it spread like a disease. It start, would start in one state and, and move to others, which is why they thought it was infectious for so long. And how long did it take till they came up with the solution? 
you know, it, it's one thing to discover, and it's another thing to convince your scientific peers. So it, it definitely took a number of years. And then it, it, putting uh, vitamins in the food supply is preventative, so, so they could cure it with things like giving people a shot of niacin or making them drink a cup of, like, yeast water. But making it preventative, that took decades. It wasn't until the early 1940s that the enrichment laws came on the books, which essentially forced companies to start adding B vitamins to refined carbs. That was part of the solution. Did that happen here in Canada at around the same time? Yes, we have similar laws. They're actually even more stringent here than they are in the United States. You also say the addition of those vitamins is the culprit behind much of the obesity epidemic. Well, it's really interesting to look at it. We'll look at it in two ways. Vitamins didn't just change our diet. It changed the way we raised livestock. And that's where things become interesting. If you look at the 1950s, let's look at pig farming, because, you know, of all the animal free days, you know, cows, chickens, and pigs, pigs are most like us. Well, back then, farmers knew if you wanted to get your pig big and fat quickly, and that's what farmers want to do, get them big and get them out the door fast, because that's how you make money, you give them corn and soy. But they knew you couldn't give them too much, because if you did, they would get like the pig version of pellagra. They knew that the, that the diet wasn't complete. So they sent the pigs out to pasture where they would eat things like alfalfa and root around. And in this way, pigs bounced their diet. So you could only give them so much of this rocket fuel feed, you couldn't give them too much. Well, the discovery of B vitamins changed everything. Now you could stick them in an enclosed area, give them that corn, give them that soy, and just dust in these vitamins, and the growth rate took off. This changed farming forever. We're very critical of what we call confinement farming. It never would have happened without the discovery of these micronutrients. So the project of modern farming is to get animals big and fat quickly. Here's the thing. We're humans, and we don't want to get big and fat quickly. That is our problem. And yet we're doing exactly what the livestock industry did, which is to say adding B vitamins, the vitamins that metabolize calories, into our refined carbs. This started in the 1940s. How come it, it, it took until, I guess, around 1980 till this obesity epidemic really took off? Yeah, well, and we don't have very good records of, of you know, BMI and body weight prior to around the 1960s. Uh, the, the rates of um, enrichment and fortification were also boosted just prior to that. And it's also, especially in the United States, it's not just um, government order, what's called enrichment. They have a voluntary fortification in, in the United States, which is to say companies can just add this stuff to, to whatever they want willy-nilly. And it makes people think, oh, this must be healthier. It's got vitamins. So the amount of B vitamins we're putting in food, especially south of the border, is just much, much higher than it ever was historically. And the lesson we learned from farming is if you want to get an animal's fat on a high-carb diet, you need a lot of these B vitamins. You can't have it without. If you know, if you have none of them, you'll literally starve. So it just begs the question: Is it wise to be adding so many of these vitamins to the food supply? We've always thought vitamins—they must be healthy. They have the word "vital," but sometimes these things work in ways that that you know surprise us, unforeseen consequences. That was author Mark Schatzker. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, part two of my interview about the end of craving. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. In part one of my interview with author Mark Schatzker, he explained how the solution to last century's pellagra problem 
may have laid the groundwork for the obesity epidemic. Italy also had pellagra, but its solution was very different. Now, the conclusion of my interview on the end of craving. When you look at what Italy did, it was completely different to what we did. And fast forward 100 years, their relationship with food is entirely different than our own. Italy didn't mandate the enrichment of their flour with, with vitamins. They encouraged poor people to eat you know, rabbit meat to drink wine, which seems insane, but they didn't know it at the time. But, but the unfiltered wine that they drank in Italy back then had niacin. But it comes down to this. For over a century, we have regarded food as being the problem. We think food is incomplete, it needs to be augmented, and we think our appetite is, is unintelligent. Italians thought completely differently. They didn't think food was the cause of pellagra. They saw poverty as the cause, and they saw food as the solution. Um, and that persists to this day. It, it's not just vitamins that we add to our food, but we've, added, we've come with all these technological fixes, artificial sweeteners, fat replacers, which is why we have things like light mayonnaise and light salad dressings. These are all predicated on the notion that the appetite is, is stupid, our brain doesn't know what it's doing, and we need to fix what's wrong. Well, the science is telling us that's not true. Our brain is incredibly smart. Our brain is like a forensic accountant, constantly analyzing the food that we eat. And when we monkey around with it, when we think we know better, we kind of create this food that's more like a weird imitation of food, and our brain is not reacting to it properly. So, so it's not just the vitamins. It's, it's this whole approach that we think we can do food better than nature can do it. You point out that actually, if you look at the diet that people eat in Italy, it has a lot of things that make us here fat. Bologna in northern Italy is pretty interesting because they don't eat a Mediterranean diet. It's, it's not grilled fish and legumes and olive oil. They like carbs and they like fat. It's, uh, it's tortellini. It's raguela bolognese. Um, at the Chamber of Commerce, they actually have a repository of official recipes. Their favorite noodle, the tagliatella, is cast in gold. So these people seem almost food-obsessed. The quality of food is incredible. We travel there just so we can eat what they're eating. And you would think if it is the deliciousness of food, which is making us gain weight, then they ought to be the largest people in the world. And their rate of obesity is 8%, which is stunning. South of the border, it's 42%. So they're eating incredibly good food, and they're literally not paying a heavy price. Is your theory that that's because they don't have all the enriched foods with all that niacin? I think that's part of it. You say that people who are obese are addicted to food and have cravings to food, which is actually not necessarily that good. And you make a distinction between that and, say, savoring a fine Belgian chocolate. Yes. So, so what we see in people with obesity, most, you know, the knock is, it, it, the, the stigma is that they indulge themselves too much, that they lose themselves in the pleasures of eating. And that's not at all what we see. When we look at the brain science, you know, for example, the experience of, of drinking a milkshake, when they drink the milkshake, they don't get more pleasure than someone who's trim. They don't even get equal pleasure. The pleasure is blunted. Where we see the difference is when they see the milkshake, they get a spike of dopamine wanting, which is to say the motivational circuits in the brain light up. They really want that milkshake. They want it more than somebody who's trim. And that is what is similar about drug addiction. It's not about pleasure. It's about craving. So they're in this kind of unfulfilled cycle 
of craving food and never having that desire fully quenched. That gets us into the neuroscience of pleasure because there's two different brain circuits. There's that motivation circuit that makes you want something. But then there's another circuit that we have, which they call liking, which is mediated by opioid receptors. And this is the pleasure impact moment of when you put the food in your mouth, you go, oh, wow, that's delicious. Different brain circuits at work and very different experiences of of what it literally feels like to eat. And you're saying that reintroducing or introducing people to the pleasure of food can actually reverse the cravings. That's what we've seen in Italy is, you know, on a culture level, this is a culture that is not afraid of food, that fully gives into the pleasures of food. They, They don't wince when they reach for the butter. They're not afraid of eating eggs. They love those things, but also there's science behind it. I I visited a clinic in Germany with a leading researcher in eating disorders, and she does what's called hedonic therapy, and she, she let me experience this. The first thing we did is we lit up this wanting circuit. She gave me two potato chips, and she said, you can't eat them. You can sniff them. You can smell that aroma coming out of the bag. You can even rub them together, but you can't eat them. You can maybe just nibble them a tiny bit. And she let me do this. And I was absolutely overcome by a craving to eat these potato chips. It was almost painful. And it was, she made me reflect on the fact that these are the kinds of food that we often eat them mindlessly. They never give us a great deal of pleasure. We never really talk about this, you know, amazing bag of potato chips I had in Florence in, you know, 2006 on my honeymoon. Those foods are never like that. We just eat them in a compulsive, reinforced way. Then she gave me a very fine chocolate, a a dark chocolate with this crunchy biscuit center. And she said, just let the heat of your body melt this on your tongue. And this was a completely different food experience. This was the liking circuit. It took me on a journey. I was immersed, kind of letting this chocolate tell me a story. This tiny little chocolate gave me such an incredible amount of pleasure. But what is so interesting is this woman does work with people who suffer from binge eating disorder. When they get these volcanic cravings to literally stuff themselves full of calories, they will take one of these fine chocolates and the pleasure from this tiny fine chocolate can extinguish this, this plume of wanting, which, which makes it very exciting because we think deliciousness is the cause of our problems. And this idea is that, in fact, it is the cure. What's the solution to this? I think we need to restore our relationship with food. We, we've lived in fear of food for decades. I mean, people are literally af- afraid of, of, of wholesome things. Food is amazing. It gives us pleasure three times a day, and we've become so alienated from us that, that, that we've removed ourselves from it, and, and we've, we've just you know, turned food into some Frankenstein version of itself. So I think the key is to get back to eating the way Italians do which is to prize real food, to revere the quality of what the land and the sea produces, and to enjoy it. Mark Shasker, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. That was Mark Shatzker, author of The End of Craving. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.